Now, if you know me, I like to start with a story when I start. I think it just helps build relatability with you guys. So uh, if you've met me before, which if you haven't, I'd love to meet you after the service. You can meet me after. I'd love that. Uh, but if you've met me before, you know that I love running. I love to, to go out, and I love running long distance. I love running on trails and stuff like that. It's kind of just my happy place, my, my zone, where I just kind of have, have that peace out in nature and stuff. And so if you also, if you know me really well, you know that I ran cross country and middle school and, and middle school and high school. And so uh, cross country and track, that's how much I loved running. And you guys probably have a few words that you can describe people who love running as maybe psychopath or weirdo <laughs> or like you're out of your mind. Why do you like running? You're in like the one percentile. Well, I am that. I love running. Uh, I haven't been doing it as much recently, but that's just because I've kind of been a lazy bum recently. But all that to say, I ran cross country and track in middle school, and that's where kind of where I'm kind of where I want to sit for just a moment. And so in my seventh grade year during track, we had this thing called the district championship. And so at the district championship, it's like, it's like the big one. It's like, if there's, it's like the Super Bowl of, of, track, of track meets. And so at this meet, there's like 24 or 25 runners. I mean, anybody who's in our district is able to run in this meet. And it was a complete and utter mess. Seventh graders were tripping and falling over each other because there were just too many runners out on the, out on the track at one time. And so UIL, which is the people that make the decisions about races and stuff, was like, okay, we can't do this again at a, at a race. Like, we need to change this. So my eighth grade year, they introduced something called zone, which was a race before district. And so zone, at zone, you would just choose the four best runners from your, your, your zone, and then they would go into district so that there's only eight runners. Now, in my eighth grade year, I was like the sixth best projected runner in the zone, and so I wasn't supposed to make it past district, but let me tell you, they called, me, they called me Mr. Freeze in, in uh, middle school. Actually, I kind of called myself that, and it just kind of stuck. And the reason why I called myself that was because I ran so much better when it was cold outside. Like, it, when it was cold and it was misty, like, that was, in, that was my zone right there. And so the stars aligned for me on zone that night. And so it was misty, and it was super cold outside, and I was like, here we go. Like, this is, this is my race. Like, I'm going to take fourth, and I'm going to make it to district. So I go out there, and I run and I get forth. I did my job. I did what I had to do to make it to district. And so I'm excited. I cross the finish line knowing that I'm in fourth and I'm pumped. I give a little like, <clears throat> like a LeBron silencer right there. I'm super excited. And so I advance to district. Now, the following week is, is district. And this, this story is kind of sad. So um, at district, I'm super excited, you know. I'm super passionate about running. I'm like, you know what? Why can't I win this race? Why can't I go out there and beat all these guys? Like, I wasn't too far off of first, second, and third last week. I mean, I wasn't more than 10 meters behind. And so I'm super excited, super passionate about this. And so we line up on the starting line and at the district championship, and the gunman gets up there and he says, runners to your mark, set, go. Poof, the, the gun goes off, and I take off. I mean, I'm gone. Like, too fast gone, like for, for a mile. I go way too fast, I'm way too excited, and I'm in first by like a good 15, 20 meters during the first lap. And so we get to the 200 and I'm still ahead, which is like the halfway point of a lap. And then we get around to the 300 and they're right on my tail. And I'm like, uh-oh, this is not good. We get to the 400, I'm in like fourth place. And so fast forward to the last lap, I'm behind like by 60 or 70 meters. And y'all, I got smoked. It was so bad as I was going down the home stretch, like the the, you know, the back or the, the front stretch in the last 100 meters of the race, that they gave me a pity clap as I was crossing the finish line. And in my mind, I was like, I was like, 
please stop that. Like, this is so embarrassing. Like, I got absolutely smoked. And so you're probably wondering why I'm telling you this story about running in district and, you know, starting out really excited and really on fire and leading a lap. In fact, after I had finished the race, my dad was like, hey, at least you led a lap at district. And I was like, you're kind of right. Like, I did lead a lap for once, but didn't, didn't amount to anything. But you're probably wondering why I told this story. And, and the reason why I, I'm telling this story is because I think and I believe that a lot of Christians run their race for Christ the same way that I ran my race at that district meet. What I mean by this is this. We start out really well and we get really excited and really passionate about something, whether it's serving the Lord, whether it's getting saved. We get really excited about the things of Jesus and then something happens in us that causes us to slow down. Something happens within us that causes us to be pulled back from the plan and the will that God has for us. And so the example that I just gave earlier was maybe it was when you got saved. Just close your eyes for a second and think about when you gave your life to the Lord. Think about the excitement that you had. Think about the passion that you had to serve the Lord and to do his work. Isn't it amazing? That's why Jesus says return to your first love because it was an incredible time when you gave your life to the Lord. You can open your eyes if you close them. But something happens after we get saved. Something, something changes in us once we get, after we get saved after a while. And if, once you got saved, you've probably found yourself saying this shortly after you got saved. You probably said, oh, I'm going all out for Jesus. Like, ain't nothing going to stop me. I give my life to the Lord. I ain't turning back. I ain't doing nothing but following God. Or maybe you said something similar to this. Nothing is ever going to take away or distract me from the Lord. Mm-mm. No way, no how. And then the enemy, you know, if you're in middle school or high school when you give yourself to the Lord, the enemy sends a little uh, honey boo-boo or honey foo-foo your way, and you're already, like, all of a sudden distracted. And so we say, we say things like this, and in the moment, you're probably sincere, and you probably mean it in that moment. But things happen, things begin to pull our attention away from the Lord. Now, when you get saved, a lot of times we have this uh, illusion that once you get saved, it's all like puppy dogs and rainbows and sunshine and like all the problems that I had before I got saved are no longer going to be there. Uh, and so that is, as we all know as Christians, that is not true at all. Like if you gave your life to the Lord at camp, you go home and you're like, oh man, I still have the same mom and dad and I still got that, my same sisters and my, the same parents that, you know, are, are annoying me and stuff like that and I still got chores to do. And so we all have these, we have these things that kind of pull us back and distract us from the race that God has for us and it slows us down. Could be a moment where you were super excited for the Lord or you, you kind of got lit on fire when you were set free or healed. Anybody been set free or healed in this room tonight? Yeah, most of us in here. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably experienced one, if not both. I know for a fact I've experienced both. And so it's an exciting time. It's an exciting thing when you get set free from that addiction that you've been struggling with for years. It's an exciting thing when you get set free from anxiety that's been crippling you for so many years. It's, it's an exciting thing when you get a cancer diagnosis and then you get healed from that cancer by the Lord's hand. And so these are exciting things. And, and after that, you're like on fire. You're like, okay, Lord, you did something amazing for me. I am never going to turn back on you again. And then something happens again. Something draws us away. Something pulls us away. Just look at the Israelites. I mean, God literally parts the Red Sea for them and lets them get out of Israel, leads them by a pillar of cloud and fire, and then Moses goes up on the mountain. And what do they do? They're like, eh, I guess Moses is some, he's dead somewhere. Let's build a golden calf and let's worship him. 
well knowing, well knowing that just a few days ago, he had led them through the Red Sea, and he had led them by a, by a pillar of cloud and a fire by night. And so we do this in our lives. We're just, we, we like to look at the Israelites and be like, these fools. Yet we do it in our lives because we, we, we've done it before where God has done a miracle in our life and then a couple of years, a couple of months later, we're like, we forget that he even did it and we're off worshiping some other thing. And it may not be another God, but it's something else in your life that you begin to worship. So another way that you could put this, I've been using the term slow down because I've been using a race terminology, using that as an illustration. But another way you could put this instead of saying that you slow down is you could instead say that you begin to drift. You begin to, to move away slowly from the Lord. And the Bible warns us against this drift. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this. He writes, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Amen. Now, here's something that I want us to understand about drift. Drift is not something that we are aware of happening in our lives all the time. Like, like, we don't just, the reason why it's called drift is because it's a slow process and because eventually, think about, let me put it this way. Think about if you're on a, a little, like a floaty out in a lake somewhere or out in the ocean and you, you feel the waves coming in and eventually, you know, if you happen to fall asleep, I've heard stories of this before where a person falls asleep on a floaty and all of a sudden they're like way out uh, at shore and they didn't even realize it was happening because it's a slow process and we, we are, are not always aware that it's even happening to us. And drift happens in the lives of Christians if we're not careful and if we do not pay the most careful attention to what we have heard, which we'll get into a little bit later. So the problem we face is this. A lot of us slow down in our race with Christ over time and we begin to drift off the path that he has set before us. So how do we avoid this? How do we keep this slowing down, this, this drifting that occurs in the lives of so many Christians from happening in our lives here at Grace Church? And the answer tonight is one word, and a lot of us, we, we rarely hear, hear this word. So it's going to be probably maybe something new that you, you rarely heard tonight. And that one word is zeal. Zeal. Look at your neighbor and say zeal. zeal. Yeah, zeal. So if you're, if you're like me, when you hear the word zeal, in fact, I, last week as I was thinking about this message, pastor asked me to speak on Wednesday, and on Thursday I was just out mowing, and I was, I was already thinking about it, and the Lord just put the word zeal on my heart, and I was like, I have no clue what that means. Like, I, I don't even, like, like zeal, I don't, and in my mind I was like, just go study it, you dingbat, and you'll figure it out. And so sometimes, sometimes we need to dig deeper when the, when the Lord gives us a word, and so I did that. I dig deeper into zeal. And, you know, zeal isn't used very much in today's, like, vernacular or, or vo vocabulary. It's not a word that we use very often, if at all. But this word has so much meaning in it, and it is a vital character trait that a Christian should have in their lives. So, in order for us to help us understand what zeal is, I'm going to define it because I understand that like zeal, again, is not a word that we use very often. And so to have zeal means this. This is the definition. To have zeal means to have a focused desire characterized by intense passion and commitment. Characterized by intense passion and commitment. So when you look at the word for zeal or zealous in the Bible, a lot of times it's translated as heat. And that's where that intense passion comes from. You, you feel a burning inside to, to do something and, and to go and, and make a difference. And so to have zeal, it means we're focused on something or we're passionate about something. And so 
we all know that we can be passionate and focused about good things. And if you can be passionate and focused about good things, that also means that you can be passionate and focused on, on, on bad things as well. So in other words, you can have zeal for bad things. And I really want, quickly want to kick off discussing zeal by discussing that. And so examples of this is that we can get too focused and passionate about maybe making more money or pursuing that promotion that you've got. And so you have a zeal to, to make more money. You have a zeal. You have an intense focus on the fact that uh, you, know, you may be very well uh, set when it comes to your money, but it's just not enough. You just want more. And you've made mammon, a.k.a. money, your God, and you keep pursuing it, and you keep pursuing it, and you keep pursuing it, and you become zealous for that rather than becoming zealous for the things of God. You, and when you become zealous for that, it begins to pull you away from other things that you are supposed to be committed to. It begins to pull you away from church. It begins to pull you away from family time. It begins to pull you away from people that you're supposed to impact and lives that you're supposed to change that God has put in your life to do. And so we do this with, with money. Maybe a lot of us haven't thought of this. Maybe it's social media or your phone. And so you may be like, ah, my phone. Like, I, I'm not super passionate. I'm, I'm not zealous about my phone. But I guarantee you, if you were to open up your phone and you were to go into your settings, especially on iPhones, it tracks every minute that you're on your phone. And if you were to look on there, you would be flabbergasted by how much time you spent on your phone. I mean, I looked on there one time at mine, and I'm just speaking for me, it was at like six or seven hours a day. I was like, oh Lord Jesus, help me. Like, this is not, this is not a good thing. And so I remember we were talking to a certain young adult one time, and we were like, hey, pull up, pull up how long you spend on your phone every day. We'd love to see it. And it was 12 hours. You, the amount of time you spend on something can clarify or reveal to you what you're passionate about and how much you care about something. And we, and I'm very guilty of this. I spend a lot of time on this thing right here and I shouldn't, I shouldn't. I should spend more time doing other things, just being in my thoughts or reading the word and meditating on the word. And so I understand that this is a thing that, that we can very easily fall into. In fact, a lot of us, we treat our days like this. We wake up, ding, you know, alarm goes off and the first thing we do is we pull up our phone. And we look at our phone. We have to go through it. We have to see what everybody did last night on social media. We have to go on Facebook and see if there's any breaking news from Fox or CNN. Or probably not anybody looking at CNN in this church, if I'm being honest. Um, but, uh, you know, Fox or CNN, you know, you pull it up. And so um, and you have to look at that. And, and then throughout your day, you're like, oh, what are they doing in the last hour? And then you're like, you put it up. And then five minutes, oh, what are they doing in the last five minutes? And you go through Facebook and social media and everything like this. And you get trapped in this thing, and you don't even, here's the thing, none of us would say that we have zeal about our phone, but we do, because it's revealed in the amount of time that we spend on it. We're passionate about being on our phone. We're, we're, we're passionate about it, even though we wouldn't necessarily say that we are. It's true because of the amount of time that we spend on it. And the next one I talk about is kind of what I referenced in the beginning. We get super passionate about news slash politics. Y'all, I cannot tell you how charged politics is in our country. And I just want to say to every Bible-believing Christian out there, politics does not supersede the Word of God. It does not supersede Christianity. And so what I want us to understand is this. Yeah, you know, politics may be important, and voting is important in a lot of stuff. But we have got to be careful to not let politics become our zeal, to not become zealous about politics, but instead to become zealous about who we should vote for, the person that we should put in office. And that is the most that we can do with politics, y'all. And so I believe that we should vote for a righteous person and things like that. But do not become zealous about the news or politics because it will leave you 
empty, and it pulls you away from the things that God wants you to do. Now, these things in and of themselves are, are not necessarily bad, but when we become zealous about these things, when we become so focused and passionate about these things that they begin to consume our life is when they start to become an issue. And so in the Bible, we see a couple of people who were zealous for the wrong things as well. Just look at Paul. Before Paul became Paul and Jesus changed his name on the road to Damascus, he was Saul. And so listen to what this says in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 about Saul. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, or Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, he was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. I want to kill these Christians. I want to get them out of here. They are a cult. They're not supposed to be here. They're doing wrong. I want to get them out. And it's not like the high priest Caiaphas asked him to come and get these papers. No, Paul was so zealous that he went to Caiaphas and he said, hey, can you give me these papers so I can get these dang Christians out of all the synagogues up there so that I can get these people to stop preaching Jesus? That's how zealous he was. He went to the high priest and asked him if he could get the papers and go and do it himself. The high priest didn't ask him. He asked the high priest. He was zealous for the wrong things. And then eventually, as we read it on Sunday morning with Pastor, he had that road to Damascus experience, and bam, he was changed. And he became zealous for the things of the Lord. The second one that I want to mention in, that we see who is zealous for the wrong things in the Bible, and this is going to be weird to hear, uh, but Satan is zealous. He's zealous for one thing and one thing only, and that's to throw you off track, to get you condemned to hell. And it's weird to think that Satan is zealous, but he is. And we, we kind of only think about zeal in, in good terms, like zeal for the Lord and stuff like that, but we can have negative zeal. Here's what I want us to understand. Tonight, I'm preaching this to come against Satan's zeal to get us off track, to get us backslidden, to get us, uh, you know, lukewarm and off the, off the plan that God has for us. And so what I want us to understand is that zeal can be dangerous if it is applied to the wrong understanding. It can be so dangerous in our lives. So we need to make sure that the understanding we have and the zeal that we should have is rooted inside the Word of God. And so that's what I want to do tonight. Tonight I want to focus on having zeal with the right understanding. I want us to have zeal for the things that are going to keep us running at full speed for the Lord. To have zeal for the things that are going to keep us from drifting. So tonight I want us to look at three things that I believe the Lord wants us to be zealous about. So we can stay near and close to Him. So... Really easy, really simple. The first thing that I want us to have zeal for is I want us to have zeal for his house. Zeal for his house. Now, there's, there's this story in, in John where Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, and it's about to be, uh, you know, he's going to go up into Jerusalem, he's going to preach, and everything like that. And so he shows up to Jerusalem, and in John chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to pick up the story there, and it says this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. 
Now, here we see Jesus get, he's kind of bothered by what he sees in there. And a lot of people think that, you know, describe this as Jesus throwing a fit of rage. And he's, he's super upset and he's super angry. And I don't think that that's what it's trying to communicate here. No, if he was super angry, he would have just gone in there and he would have started flipping tables. And he would have started, you know, taking care of business, uh, per se, in there. But no, instead, it says that he sat down and he made a whip. So that means he was completely controlled the whole time. It was completely calculated. He was sat down, he was calm, and then when the whip was done making, then he got to business. And I would like to say that he still wasn't super angry. Nowhere does it say that he got super angry. Nowhere does it say that he was in a fit of rage. But I would like to argue that instead it was very calculated and it was very predetermined of him to do it. And so we, we see Jesus get bothered by this you know, going on in the temple courts or what Jesus would call his father's house. And instead of going into the temple courts to honor and praise the Lord, these people were dishonoring God by making it into a marketplace rather than a place of praise, by turning it into a place where they get to exchange goods rather than a place where they honor and lift up the name of Yahweh, the Most High God. And so he's bothered by this, and the people's attitudes about the house had been lowered, is what I want us to see here. The people's attitudes, you know, went from, okay, this is a place where we worship God to, oh, this is just a place where we exchange goods and we sell, we sell stuff. Now, what I want us to see in this passage is that, you know, churches around here aren't necessarily, you know, turning their foyers into marketplaces or anything like that. Like, we certainly don't do that here. But what I want us to see here is that we can't let the attitude that we have of this house, aka this, this building, because, yeah, we are the temple of God and we are the houses of God, but there is also something really special about this building, this house, that we keep it holy. And so we need to make sure that we keep a very high and lofty attitude attitude in regards to the way that we see this church building, any church building. We need to keep a high attitude, a high, a high thought pattern about what this building represents and, and what it is. This is not just four walls and some rooms inside of it. This is not just a place where we have a group hangout, and this is not just a place where you check off your religious checkbox each week. No, this is a place, this is all holy ground, and this is a place where we meet with God every single week on Sundays and Wednesdays. This is a place where believers come together, and we assemble with one another, and we lift up the name of Jesus, and so that is what this place is designed to do. We cannot let our, our attitudes about this building be lowered, because you have to draw the line somewhere. If this building is just like a bar, I mean, what, where, where's the line? There's got to be a difference here. There's got to be a, a special thing about this building that makes it different from a bar, or, or even just, you know, a, a schoolroom or something like that. There's something different here, and it's the fact that this building is designed to be a meeting place for believers to come and, and lift up the name of Jesus. So, we have to keep a high and lofty thought pattern about what this building represents. We have to have a zeal to keep it that way. And so that's kind of the first part of having zeal for his house. And the second part of having zeal for his house is this. The second way we need to be zealous about the house of the Lord is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16. And so to give you a little background really quick, uh, this is where Jesus is very young. He's a teenager. And uh, his parents are up in Jerusalem during Passover. And they leave. And somehow, someway, they forget the Savior of the world. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. They managed to do it. You know, it's like, it's, I can't imagine leaving my kid without, you know, 
behind and not seeing them in the car, or in their case, like not seeing them on the camel or whatever he rode on back in the day. But, um, but they, they somehow managed to do it. And so in Luke 4.16, it, it says this, that when they finally got back, it says, He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm way, whoops. No, I, I, I referenced the, the wrong thing really quick. So yeah, in Luke 4.16, sorry, I totally got off track. Sorry. The second way we need to be jealous about the house of the Lord, forget what I just said before that, is that uh, in Luke 4.16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So uh, as we see here, it was Jesus' custom to go every single opportunity he got or when it was scheduled for him to go into the synagogue and read the scriptures. It was his custom. It was his custom to do so. And so we need to be devoted to showing up every opportunity we can get to be with other believers in worship and in hearing of the word. If we remain zealous and faithfully attending church, we're going to find that we'll remain closer to the Lord. And I mean, it makes sense, right? If we show up to church, like we're going to be connected in a body of believers and immediately your spiritual health goes up. And if you go to church, you're going to have a place where you hear the word once, twice, maybe even three times a week, and immediately your spiritual strength gets stronger. Amen. You're going to be in a place where, where you get to worship the Lord with other believers, and there's something different about worshiping with other believers. We all experienced this during COVID. It was not the same at home as it was in here, and I can tell you very much that when I'm up on that stage right there on a Sunday morning, and I hear all of you guys singing, it makes me weak because I am just so overjoyed Amen. to hear hundreds of people singing out to the Lord. And so there is a reason why we need to gather here. And it's because of the fact that when we are gathered here, when we come to church and we make it a priority to be here and be faithful to showing up on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, what you're going to find is that you're going to be more spiritually strengthened. And that means that you're not going to slow down in your race as much. That means that you're going to remain strong and you're going to be able to finish with strength and you won't drift away. So... We have to keep a high and lofty view of what this building represents, and we have to make sure that we're in this building in order to have a, a, a zeal for the, thing, the things of the Lord. And the second thing I want to discuss tonight is we have to have a zeal for his word, a zeal for his word. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but the, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And so I was thinking about going with a different verse in the New Testament, but this verse came to mind because I love the way it referenced the fact that blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who delights in it, who delights in reading in this Bible, who delights in opening up the pages and consuming what the Lord has to give us. And it says, and who meditates on his law day and night. So that doesn't mean just waking up and doing a quick read and then boop, closed, forgotten everything you read. No, it says that we're supposed to meditate on it day and night. So what does that mean? That means when we read something and, and something really speaks to us, what we do is, is we think about it, we consume it, and we let it get deep down in us, and then we bring it back up, and, and we think about it again, and we meditate it, and we continue to think on the things that we read in this book. And when we meditate on it, it begins to get written on our hearts. And then things are going to happen in our lives 
where we're going to kind of maybe get off track or a certain storm comes and that verse that was written on your heart five years ago then pops up because you know it and because the Holy Spirit then gets to bring it back to your remembrance and you're going to be a stronger believer because of it. But I also like the way it says that this person, this person who, who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his word day and night, it says that this person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, but whatever they do prospers. And so in any season, whether it's summer, spring, you may be in a spiritual winter, you're still producing fruit. You're still super strong. You're still planted and rooted in the Word of God. And when we're rooted in the Word of God, what begins to happen to us is it doesn't matter what comes our way. Nothing, nothing is going to be able to throw us off course. Nothing is going to be able to take us off of the plan that God has for us. And, and so when we begin to be rooted in the Word of God, you know, we're not going to grow weary. We're, we're, we're going to be strengthened by the Word of God. And so this kind of correlates with the, the, the race illustration that I was using. And so you're, when you are consuming the word, when, you, when you're consuming it, uh, you know, I like to think of it like you are, like you're eating food, for example. And so when you consume food, like you need to consume food every day, right? Like that, that's very obvious. And yet a, a lot of us, we only like to consume this thing once or twice a week when we come to church. And so we'll leave it to the preachers to read it to us, and we're not really going to read it in our free time. We, you know, that, that's for the preachers to do. No, 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 no. In order for you to stay physically healthy, you have to eat every single day. You have to consume food every single day. There's no argument on that. But in order to remain spiritually healthy, guess what? you got to consume this every single day. Every single day you have to consume this, and you got to put it down inside of you, or else your spiritual strength is going to wane. You cannot be a strong and, and a strong spiritual Christian without consuming this word every single day. And, and I'm not saying like, oh, if you miss a day, you're going to hell or something like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, please don't misunderstand me. But our goal should be every day to get this down inside of us, to get it every single day. Listen, I love that y'all are here Sundays and Wednesdays. That's awesome. That's incredible. But your alone time is so important with God, and putting this down inside of you is super important. So being zealous for the word will help us to remain more spiritually strong and in tune with the Lord. And so the, 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 final, the final one, the third point, the third thing that I believe that the Lord wants us to have zeal for, be zealous for, is this. He wants us to have a zeal for his will, a zeal for his will. In, in Luke 2.49, which is where I was referencing earlier, and now I'm going to tell you guys all again, for those of you who, for all of you who have already forgotten, Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem, and so his parents are gone, and now his parents are back, and they're like, uh, you know, why didn't you come with us and all this stuff, even though they're the ones who forgot about it. So uh, anyways, Luke 2.49 says this, and I'm reading from the New King James Version for this one. It says that Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? It's like, Jesus, like, this answer is so obvious. He's your mom and dad. Like, come on now. Uh, he goes on to say, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Amen. And I love that right there. They, there's this lady named Christine Kane. She's a preacher, and she, she preaches all the time. She's like, she's Australian, so I'm going to do the best Australian accent I can. Don't judge me. She's like, you got to be about the Father's business and stuff like that. And it just sticks in my mind because we, we as Christians need to be about the Father's business. And what this means is we have to be about his will. We have to be about the plan and the purpose that he set before us, and that's the Father's business for our lives. And here, you know, I kind of think that Jesus almost sounds sassy. He's like, why did you come after me? Like, like, like why? Like, and so, uh, 
you know, obviously Jesus wasn't sassy, at least I don't think. Sometimes it seemed like he may have been like borderline sarcastic with people when he asked them questions, but it was for their own good. So a lot of people ask, you know, how do I figure out God's will for my life? You know, how do, how do I figure out the plans and purposes that he set before me? How, how do I figure all that out? And you want to know how you figure out God's will for your life? You open this thing right here. You open it right here. So tomorrow morning, what I want you to do is I want you to open this thing out. Get your Bible out. You know, pull it out and go, <laughs> kind of blow the dust off that sucker. It's been a while since you had that thing out. And so you got to open that, open it up, and just start reading. Just start reading. Start in Genesis, and you'll find God's will for your life. Go to Psalms and Proverbs and, and, the, and the poetry books. You're going to find God's will for your life. You go to the New Testament, it doesn't matter where you are, God's will for your life is in there. And there's going to be things that you can apply to your life that if you didn't read it at all, you would have never figured out. You'd have never known about it. But since you opened it, now you're like, oh my goodness, this is God's will for my life. And things that you've been wondering about, things that you're wanting answers to, all of a sudden, you're going to read it. And you're going to have understanding. And maybe in the past, you've read something. You've read in this book and you didn't understand it and all of a sudden, boom, revelation is going to come and there's going to be more understanding. And so this book is alive and active. Alive and active. And so if you wanted to get to know God's will for your life, you open this up. You crack it open and you start reading and you're going to find yourself more in tune, more in line with the will of God. Now, I hear a lot of people ask like, well, I just want to know like what God has for me, like specifically like things that this book doesn't explain. And what I want us to understand is, is that when we're obedient to the commands that Jesus has given us, like the, the will that we're supposed to be following, and we start, we start walking in, in line with his will, those things are going to begin to get revealed to us. Only as long as we're obedient, though. And maybe, maybe God has mercy on you, and he's like, he reveals something to you. It certainly happened to me, where I wasn't deserving of something, some sort of revelation. He still revealed it to me, even though I wasn't opening up his word at the time. And so in Mark 12, verse 30 through 31, it Jesus is talking about the two greatest commandments, and uh, this is just a starting place for us as Christians, and so I want to read it here. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm referencing these two verses. I believe that when we put these two verses into action, you know, here's the, you know, love the Lord your God right here, and then love your neighbor is just like it. Now, love your God has got to be over love your neighbor or else you're going to get some weird sort of views about how you're supposed to treat your neighbor because love the love Lord your God is, is the first thing that you should do with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when we start doing these two things just as a starting place, we find ourselves walking in the will of God and all these other areas are going to be lit up in your life and you're going to see the will of God happening and it's going to be revealed to you more and more and more as you continue to be obedient and as you continue to figure out His will and do His will for your life. So open your Bible, read it, figure out His will for you. doesn't matter where you start, just start. Just start and the Holy Spirit will guide you. So zeal. We need to have a zeal for His house. Keep a high and lofty view of this building. We have to have a, a, a zeal for showing up. We have to be passionate and excited about showing up here on Sundays and Wednesdays. And I kind of want to side note this really quick. Don't come to church all like, oh, I got to go to church and get up out of bed all sad and, and uh. 
Can I tell you something? Church will be so much better for you if you just got excited about coming to church. If when you woke up on Sunday morning, you were like, I'm going to church. And it doesn't matter if you're tired. It doesn't matter if you had a bad Saturday, a bad Friday, or a bad week as a whole. It matters what your attitude is that morning. And if you decide to say, you know what? I'm going to be excited about going to church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Maybe, just maybe, if you if you get out of that, that sad attitude or that attitude that I'm just going to go to church just to go to church or whatever, maybe then God will move in this service and you'll figure out what it's like to come and, and have the Lord touch you in a service. And that could potentially change the way you view church for the rest of your life. Every morning you'll get, every morning you wake up on a Sunday morning or every night that you come to a Wednesday night service, you'll be like, hey, God did something in my life back then at church. Why can't he do it tonight? Why, why can't God do something more in me tonight? And we'll start believing that God is going to start doing these things. So we have to have a high and lofty view of what this building represents and coming to church and being faithful to it. And we have to have a zeal for his word. We have to have a zeal for his word. We have to get excited about reading his word and realize that this book is alive and active. And that is, it has application for our lives today. It doesn't matter that it was written 2,000 years ago. It has application for our lives today because the Holy Spirit wrote these words and it's timeless. It's timeless words. And finally, we have to have a zeal for his will. And so what I want us to see is that this, when we do these three things, that race that I was talking about earlier where I just got completely smoked, you know, in, in a physical race. I believe that when we do these three things in our spiritual race, when we're running after Christ and when we're pursuing Christ, we're not going to fall back. We're not going to drift away because we're rooted and we're connected in community here at church. We're rooted in His Word and we're pursuing His will. So, do these things. Have zeal for them. Be zealous for them. Be passionate. Be excited about them because they're things that God wants us to have zeal for. So tonight, the way I'm going to close is I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, Pastor Mark is going to come up and he's going to dismiss us. So have zeal for those three things and watch the Lord change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this night, Lord. And Lord God, I just pray that you would bless each and every person in here. Father, that you would help all of us to have a zeal for your house. That you would help all of us to have a zeal for your word. And Father, that you would help all of us to have a zeal to see your will be done in our lives and in others' lives as well, Father. So Lord, I thank you that you are a good God. And I thank you that you're working in and through all of us. And Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be a word that is heard tonight and not acted out, but that they would hear it and that we would do it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen.